Hey everybody, this is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right, and Center. Thanks for coming back to the show. There really isn't an upside to Trump. That was one of the milder comments about the former president from Fox News host Tucker Carlson. It was revealed this week as part of a defamation lawsuit against Fox News. Fox is being sued by Dominion Voting Systems. That company was the target of conspiracy theories by Trump loyalists after his 2020 election loss. Just to summarize things here, the filings reveal that Fox hosts and executives knew Trump had lost the election and that the claims of it being stolen were false. But they got behind this narrative because it was what their audience wanted, and it was also pretty good for business. Here to talk about the legalities of this case is Rennell Anderson-Jones, a Lee E. Teitelbaum professor of law at the University of Utah and an affiliated fellow at the Yale Law School Information Society Project. Um, Rennell, welcome. Thanks for being here. An Information Society Project sounds like you were the perfect person to, to talk about this, this case. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I, this, this is a kind of amazing case, right? I mean, it's, it's rare to see what we're seeing here. You know, we're all talking about this 1964 New York Times versus Sullivan ruling in the Supreme Court, which kind of created the the baseline guide for libel and defamation law for all this time. But I mean, we have the scope here. It's just clear damning evidence, you could argue, over an extended period of time that Fox was reporting something that many people in the company knew was false. It, it, It really feels unprecedented and and speaks to this very important legal concept of actual malice, which if proven would mean that Fox would be liable here. So I I guess let me just start there. Can you kind of give us the the nuts and bolts of this case and, and sort of where the big legal question lies? Yes, you're right that the constitutional standard here from Sullivan is Uh, incredibly strict. It presents this very high barrier, and deliberately so. Uh, We, as a First Amendment matter, want to protect freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And so the court in Sullivan said uh, defamation suits can't be weaponized uh, to silence critics or uh, to stifle dissent. And we want them not to be particularly easy to bring when there is a public figure or a public official and a matter of public concern involved. And so the court said uh, it's not enough uh, for you when you're suing for defamation to show that the journalist on the other end of it was sloppy uh, or that they were partisan or that they were hypocritical or that they were biased or even that they were inaccurate. Uh, You have to show this thing that the court calls actual malice, which means knowing falsity or reckless disregard for the truth. It has to be that there was a deliberate defamatory lie. It's very much focused on the state of mind. And the truth is that this barrier is so high uh, that uh, very few cases are brought and even fewer uh, proceed to trial, and even fewer still are ever won. And uh, this is a rare case uh, that seems to be moving ahead full steam. And in part, it's because of the evidence that you were just describing. Uh, Dominion Voting Systems has come forward with this body of evidence that it says shows both the falsity of the claims that were made about its voting machines, but also, importantly, 
that Fox was aware of this, uh, that it moved forward uh, to tell the lie, knowing that it was a lie. And so we see this uh, set of text messages and emails and internal memos um, messaging each other, saying things like, uh, this is crazy, or this is ludicrous, or um, uh, she, Sidney Powell, is lying. Sidney Powell was the guest who Fox had on a lot, who who kept pushing this, this false claim about Dominion. I mean- That's right. She's at at the core of uh, many, she and Rudy Giuliani are at the core of many of the statements over which Dominion is suing. Uh, And that evidence uh, that they were internally acknowledging to each other that this was false uh, is coupled with this body of evidence that uh, goes to the question of motivation, Uh, memos internally, um, communications between key Fox players saying to each other, uh, we're really worried that Fox loyalists are gravitating elsewhere in the information ecosystem. Basically, we can't tell the truth because we'll lose audience and and lose money. I mean, it's pretty clear that that, 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 that feeling existed in the network. There is a there's a, a great deal of um, documentary evidence that Dominion has gathered over something like seven eight months of discovery and depositions and uh, gathering of text messages and emails and so forth that states um, essentially that that uh, that demonstrates people inside of Fox saying to each other. Our audience base seems to be craving more of this election denialism, these conspiracy theories, and we need to work to win them back. Well, can, can I ask, I mean, what, what's so interesting, I, I, I read uh, what, what Fox lawyer Aaron Murphy had, had told NPR, and it was interesting because to my non-legal expert mind, I mean, she was saying, she said these words, we don't suppress free speech that we don't think is right. And she also argued that that having more voices out there, including from the president of the United States, including things that a network knows might not be true, but that allowing those things out there is good for democracy overall because you can hear them, you can debate them, you can debunk them, and you can have a better chance of getting to the truth. It, it feels like Fox isn't just saying that this doesn't reach the, the standard of actual malice, that they're sort of turning things and 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 making a different kind of argument to, to, to the court. Is that right? So it's definitely the case that uh, Fox's overarching narrative of the case is uh, that news gathering matters and that there has to be this wide space for news gathering to happen and, and not have uh, journalists and commentators on matters of public concern be uh, sort of operate in the shadow of some anxiety about whether they can discuss major allegations that happen and that come from important people without having concern about um, the threat of a defamation suit down the line. Dominion's response to this uh, is that there were dozens of other uh, large national media outlets that reported on these sorts of uh, allegations that were being made by Trump and his surrogates, and that Dominion is not suing. Uh, that there are there's something factually different here. That the, that it's sort of a false choice to suggest that we can either have vibrant news gathering uh, or uh, we live under this uh, pall of threat of. Um, uh, diminishment of freedom of the press, uh, that uh, the the line here, the Constitution draws the line here at false, deliberate lies, mm-hmm. and, and that that's the thing that Dominion, um, it, that is driving Dominion's lawsuit here. 
But but an argument like this Fox lawyer is making, we don't suppress free speech that we don't think is right. By making the argument that what Donald Trump's loyalists were saying, even if it was untrue, was free speech and that it's worth journalists at least saying what people in power are saying and not, quote, suppressing free speech. Is, is that an argument that's likely to land with, you know, these these lower courts and potentially the Supreme Court if, if they do look at this? Well, I mean, in at least some respects, it maps on to the broader themes of the Sullivan precedent that we described. Uh, that is, uh, we do want uh, to know what our public officials are saying, even if what our public officials are saying um, is nonsense, right? Even if it's crazy. And in fact, in some respects, we definitely need to know if our public officials are making wild and crazy allegations, uh, because that tells us something about the people who are making the allegations. Yeah, I mean, I remember, the, I, I remember having the guilt over reporting that Donald Trump said that that you know he thinks you could inject bleach into your into your blood to stop COVID. I mean, and and I I was sleepless for several nights thinking that I had just put people in danger, but I was also like. If the if the president of the United States is saying a thing as ridiculous as it is, it's it's also our responsibility to to report it. And that that's a horrible thing to grapple with. Yes. And and uh, I mean, one of the reasons why journalists might want to report that uh, it isn't it isn't for the truth or falsity of the statement. It's so that uh, the electorate can then make a judgment about that person uh, in the future. If this is a person who is spreading these sorts of lies, uh, maybe that goes to the content of their character the next time that they show up on the ballot. And so we do see an important journalistic role in this kind of um, neutral reporting of what uh uh, what people in power are saying, the argument that Dominion is making here is that this wasn't presented as um, a, a neutral debate, something to discuss. Uh, rather, uh, Fox endorsed uh, and leaned into and um, elevated as true things that it knew was false. Say more about the potential precedent here. I mean, I as a journalist really struggle because I'm sitting here thinking what Fox did is deplorable. I mean, knowing that that something was not true and putting it out there for purely the interest of keeping audience in, in business. But I also don't want to operate as a journalist with with this threat of defamation and libel always hanging over me. I mean, could this be dangerous precedent if, if a court does side with with Dominion here? Well, so the thing that would be dangerous and the thing that I and a number of other First Amendment scholars in this uh, free speech and free press space have uh, warned about for a number of years uh, uh, is the watering down of that Sullivan standard. Uh, it, it is a, a truly high constitutional hurdle, and I think it must, uh, for democracy preservation reasons, remain one. The application of that truly high hurdle doesn't trouble people as much as the watering down of it. And so that's something that we're going to be watching really closely for. Uh, if the uh, court here is really carefully demanding that there be this showing that this wasn't just sort of sloppy news gathering, wasn't just negligent news gathering, rather it was done with a deliberate state of mind, then um, that bar is quite protective of the operation of good journalism in this country. And uh, Dominion argues here, it's advancing of democracy. And, and this is the thing that is most interesting to me about this case. 
your run-of-the-mill defamation suit does not often uh, sort of pit head-to-head constitutional democracy preservation values the way that this case does. We have Fox, on the one hand, emphasizing the constitutional need to protect free speech and free press. And we have Dominion, on the other hand, uh, saying, uh, actually, the Constitution and democracy preservation are on our side. Uh, This was a major lie that was told about a, a presidential election and the integrity of that election and failing to correct that lie judicially, uh, failing to uh, impose consequences for that deliberate lie also damages democracy. I want to bring in our, our regular panel here. We've, we've got Moa Lathy, who's executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service, and Sarah Isger, who's senior editor at The Dispatch. And, and Sarah, you're also a lawyer. Um, I know we do want to disclose that your husband uh, has worked on this case for Fox. We should say that out there. But um, but you're a lawyer as well. I, I just wonder, I mean, what, where do you see this? Is, does this? Does what Fox did rise to the standard of actual malice? I just think that Professor Jones here has laid this out so well yeah, I agree. in terms of the different Um, principles that we have at stake. And in particular, I think a lot of the coverage of this has really minimized or not even acknowledged the principle on the Fox side, that actually we want, especially on news gathering, the standard for defamation to be really high. Because for instance, David, I mean, you brought up the bleach example, but let me bring up a maybe a more nuanced example, um, although I think that one's helpful because it's the president of the United States and you don't want someone not to cover what the president says, even if you know it's a lie or believe it's a lie. Well, I mean, I think that's that's the hard question. But yeah, yeah, go on. Right. And by the way, the difference between know and believe it's a lie if you're a reporter is pretty nuanced too sometimes, especially when you're trying to cover an issue like transgender hormone therapy for minors or climate change. And you want, as a journalist, to present both sides, even if you don't believe one of the sides. And so when you're looking at all of these emails and communications about, you know, from Fox that are saying, like, this is crazy, I definitely don't believe this, and everyone's like, haha, they didn't even believe it. You have to remember that most of the defamatory statements that we're talking about were said by guests on the program who were being employed by or representing the President of the United States in what was pointless and unsubstantiated, but nevertheless litigation. And there's also, you know, a litigation privilege to report on what's happening in courts. You want reporters to report on what the president of the United States is saying, what his representatives are saying. And, you know, even setting aside the defamation, the legal side here for a second, we can have this debate in in so many different ways. You know, the Tom Cotton op-ed at the New York Times about whether you should use the military to quell domestic Um, you know, violence or protests. The New York Times published that, then apologized for publishing it. This was a U.S. senator saying something that most people think that you probably would want to know that that U.S. senator thinks. So I I really like the way she laid out the principles. Yeah, no, I do too. You know, when when something used to be labeled opinion, um, there was a clear line between opinion and reporting of the news. And I think, to me, one of the huge problems today is those lines are just all confusing and blurred. You hear things, you don't necessarily say, well, this is a reporter who is reporting this as things that are true and factual. This is in the space on the opinion page as an opinion. I mean, those those days are just gone. But 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 I agree that there was a time to me when the Tom Cotton thing would have a different standard than listening or watching Fox and thinking that you were hearing the truth about, quote, election rigging that were things that just didn't happen at all. Um, 
I actually do want to come back to this topic a bit uh, after we go to a break. But um, Rennell Anderson-Jones, uh, let me thank you for being here. Uh, you're Lee E. Teitelbaum Professor of Law at the University of Utah and an affiliate fellow at the Yale Law School Information Society Project. And as Sarah Isker just said, uh, you really helped lay this case out for us in very clear terms for people who are legal experts and uh, people like myself who are not. So thanks a lot. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. We're back with more Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green. We have Moa Lathy here, Executive Director at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service, and Sarah Isker, who is Senior Editor at The Dispatch. Um, Mo, let me, let me bring you in here. Um, I mean... You, I've known you in my role as a journalist for years as someone who's covered politics. You have obviously watched years of coverage of politics. Um, how are you digesting this kind of case and what the risks might be? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm just thinking about it uh, in non-legal terms. And I should put out my own disclosure. I spent six years as a contributor as a political contributor at Fox News, mm-hmm. uh, leaving just at the end of of this last December. And I will say that as someone that was there, um, there was a market coverage shift um, during those six years, and especially post-election 2020, especially post-January 6th where there wasn't this robust debate. I mean, I think everything we just heard was a tremendous discussion of the legal principles, but it's predicated on the Fox News argument that they are, or at least Fox News's argument seems to be predicated on the fact that we want debate, and they didn't want debate. It was a very one-sided coverage. Now, that is a byproduct of the media age we live in, I think, where you do have a more partisan press Uh, across the board, but they were presenting so much of the influence that media companies have is in story selection, guest selection, and uh, how they frame the conversation. They brought on these Trump uh, advisors to present the perspective as fact with virtually no uh, pushback. Uh, My own bookings on the network dropped precipitously uh, during the last couple of years. They weren't bringing in... Because you weren't you weren't kind of pushing the narrative they wanted pushed. Or at least that the audience wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Fox always treated me very, very well. But they just stopped booking. You saw fewer and fewer guests coming on to, pr- to provide that other perspective. And there were some of the hosts, particularly on the opinion side, who were actively pushing the false narrative. It wasn't presented as debate. Uh, If it was, it was with the the thinnest of fig leaves, right? It was presented as a plausible theory. They didn't even do the simple disclosure that there is not evidence to back these claims up, right? Even if they had just done that, the president says X, but there is no evidence to show that at this point. That would at least be something different. And here's what's really fascinating to me. Rupert Murdoch, in some of his uh, comments in the depositions that were released, says, 
I wish we had done more to push back on this falsehood in hindsight. So he knows, he knows that what he was putting out there was not true. They have an opportunity to change, but they're doing the same thing again. We are seeing it now with Tucker Carlson um, and the footage that he's releasing, the packages he's putting out there on January 6th. Spreading this January 6th footage and cherry picking and deciding what's going what's gonna to push that narrative. And, and, and trying to change uh, uh, the narrative that it was an insurrection, trying to portray it as a peaceful protest. If they were truly worried about this, if Murdoch's comments in those depositions were true, then they have an opportunity to change course, but they're not. They're doubling down on it, and they say repeatedly, time and time again, in these depositions, in these text messages, that it is all about audience retention. And that is so crucial because I think that the picture you're painting is very different than the one that the the Fox lawyer, Aaron Murphy, was suggesting, like that this is a place that had made a decision that we are fighters for free speech and we just ultimately want to put these, you know, views out there, whether they're fact-based or not, to ultimately allow a vibrant debate to happen and ultimately let us as a country get to the truth. If, if that was the true motivation, that's not what I'm hearing from you, what you've seen the inside. Years ago, Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, did an interview where somebody asked him, um, you know, your slogan is fair and balanced. What do you say to those people who say your coverage is anything but that it's incredibly slanted? And Roger Ailes said something that I thought was very telling. He said, no, no, I think you misunderstand me. We are the balance that the entire media ecosystem has been hijacked by progressives, has been hijacked by the left. We are providing the balance to that. It has always been in the ethos of Fox News that it was going to try to balance out the progressive tilt they saw uh, that they believed and their viewers believed was in the mainstream media. They've taken it, I think, to a whole new level over the past especially since the Trump presidency. Uh, and we're seeing some pretty dangerous effects as a result. All right, I, I want to move to um, a very different uh, different story now. Um, and actually, last week, you, Mo, ranted uh, about this, what was happening in, in Texas, and, and really is, a, I think, a true reflection of the times we're living in. It was a story about a, a, a girl in middle school in Louisville, Texas, near Dallas, who had to grapple with the fear of a school shooting and, and figuring out how to respond to that fear. Don't come to school tomorrow are the words that she heard in passing between some boys during gym class. And she initially thought nothing of this, but as the day went on, she remembered Newtown and Parkland and Uvalde, a, a school in her state that's not that far away. Confused, scared, she did what a lot of middle schoolers do these days. She texted her friends and she shared her concerns and, and wanted to warn them and see what they thought. When school officials looked into this, they determined the boy did not have access to a gun. There was no real threat to the school. The school also determined that the student who texted her friends had made false accusations about school safety and that she would be punished with a three-day suspension and then transferred to an alternative school where she would finish out eighth grade. Uh, that punishment has since been reduced, but the fact that she was punished, I think, Mo, is what caught your eye. And, and you know, we should be clear here. School officials have said very little about this because of privacy laws. Uh, school officials said 
In general, the administration considers discipline when students spread rumors instead of following proper channels and notifying an adult. We're not naming the 13-year-old girl who, who's involved in this because she's a minor, but um, her mother is on the line with us and, and was generous enough to, to be here, Lisa Youngblood. Um, Lisa, thank you for, for taking some time to, to talk about what's, what's going on with your daughter. Hi, and, and thank you for shining a light on the story regarding my daughter. Well, it's, you know, it's, that's our job. And it's also, it's also Talia Richmond's job. She's the reporter who, who did shine a light on this and covered the story for the Dallas Morning News. And uh, Talia, you're, you're with us too. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, Lisa, can you just explain a bit more of why your daughter was so frightened when she heard that from, from this boy in her gym class? Yes, I can. Um, so when she heard it, um, like the story tells, she didn't give it a lot of thought. And then as the day went on, she really started kind of thinking about it and knowing that if you Google the term, don't come to school tomorrow, uh, you get countless articles that are connected with um, school violence. So on her drive home, she began to think and, you know, what a 13-year-old does. She texted her friends, hey, I heard this. I'm a little concerned. It's really scaring the out of me. Um, I'm going to try to tell my mom without crying. So from the span of the time of her first having that conversation, lapsed about a 21-minute window from when I was in the know. And then I was like, okay, it's after school. Who can I call? Who can I talk to? And my phone rang. And I was so grateful and thought that the school was reaching out and, you know, we shared the information and that they were going to do the right thing and everything was going to be okay. So the next day, my daughter goes to school. Under the guise of being helpful, she's giving additional information, who, what, where, why, um, and then later finds out that she is being accused of a falsehood. And, you know, I want to make mention that my daughter has never been a disciplinary problem. She's a high-performing 13-year-old. And so it was absolutely devastating when she realized that she was now being punished for her process of how she escalated. And tell me about the punishment. I mean, she, she was she was originally sent to like a, a disciplinary school um, for the rest of eighth grade. And you, you decided not to send her. I mean, what 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 was? How, how did you come to that decision? Researching the entire issue and becoming familiar with the appeals process, I really learned that um, alternative school is the school to prison pipeline. Um, When we were going through the process of the investigation, I really begged and implored the school to look at this through a different lens, that we're talking about 13-year-olds. They don't always get it right, but maybe this was a learning opportunity for the district to step back and say, are we educating students properly? And I also want to say that the kid who made the statement also was an opportunity for the school district to step back and say, are we teaching kids about trigger language? that a 13-year-old boy can have a lapse in judgment and he can say something that can be turned into something really big that now has impacted his life. Hmm. Um, I felt like the punishment of 73 days was going zero to 60 during a time when administrations are looking towards a restorative approach. And that's what I asked for as we started the process of the appeals. Hmm. So so you're, you're saying this could have been a teaching moment. Your daughter's 13 and... I just want to make sure because what I'm hearing from you is you can in some ways see the school's point of view that 
that maybe your daughter should learn next time if she's scared to go to an adult and, and not jump on and start texting friends, but that she's 13, 13 year olds do the best they can. And that this should have been a moment for her to learn that as opposed to being sent to a disciplinary school for, for the rest of eighth grade. I would say yes and no. Okay. I would say that, yes, 13-year-olds, that's how they do. And I think it's something that the district should look back and say, hey, if we're having a group assembly with how we're educating kids, maybe it should be a more authentic conversations in smaller groups where we know that they're paying attention. Um, I looked at it when I thought about, well, if I were at work and I heard someone make a comment that was concerning, I might talk to my coworker before we go to HR. So really nowhere in the written policy does it say who exactly you can and cannot tell. And so I, I, I don't agree with the fact that she did anything wrong. Um, everything that happened should have happened. She raised the concern. It got in the hands of the school. They assessed it as a non-threat. Um, everyone should have been rewarded. And then if additional conversations need to happen to further educate um, young minds on how to escalate to avoid panic, then that was something that should have happened. Talia, you're, you're, you're a reporter for the Dallas Morning News. You covered this story. What, um, what, what, first of all, is the school's position here for, for initially giving out what seemed like such a, a strict punishment here? Yeah, um, so Lisa actually was able to provide us at the Dallas Morning News with recordings of her appeals hearings with dozens of pages of documents outlining what happened here. So we have a really clear picture, I think, of what was going on both with her family and what was happening at the school. And the school said that because Lisa's daughter um, alerted her friends and alerted her mom before telling adults at the school or using an anonymous reporting system um, that it, it really had a great impact on the school. They're saying, you know, they uh, were fielding concerned calls from parents, um, the police got involved, and that had uh, the effect of scaring people. They had to send out an email uh, alerting everyone that they were aware that some some rumors had been going around and that they were taking care of it. Um, I think that in the school's mind, they have this appeals process available for when they assign discipline as severe as what Lisa's daughter received. They say you can go through the first appeal with the principal, the second appeal with more people from the district. So if the initial punishment turns out to be not appropriate based on more people's opinion, more investigation, then we can roll it back. And they did, right? I mean, we should say they, they did roll it back. Uh, yes, they did. By the time they rolled it back, however, it had been three weeks since Lisa's daughter was allowed to be in school. You know, she missed her school dance. She missed her annual cheer club breakfast. She missed hours and hours and hours of academics. You know, her favorite subject is math. And by the time that she got back to school, they had moved on from what she was learning. I think research shows us that assigning harsh discipline, even if in this case it gets rolled back, can really have devastating effects on children's academic and emotional um, outcomes. So um, the district said that the process worked as intended, but um, I'm sure Lisa can speak to the lingering effect that this experience has had on, on her family. Uh, well, I, I really want to dig much more into this with both of you because um, this just feels like such a such a moment and, and the kind of really 
hard decisions that I think both students are going to need to make in the moment, um, given the times that we're living in. And also schools are going to need to decide how to handle situations like this. So so let's keep talking. We're going to take a break um, and uh, we'll be right back with more Left, Right and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back with uh, more Left, Right, and Center. We have Talia Richmond with us. She's a reporter um, for the Dallas Morning News and Lisa Youngblood, uh, whose 13-year-old daughter was um, received punishment after she texted her friends on a, a day when she was really frightened about a possible attack on her school after she heard a, a boy in her gym class telling students not to come to school the next day. Talia, I, I just want to, if you could, step back a little bit as you look at this story, because I, I do feel like it is it is such an important moment for all of us in terms of where life in public schools might be headed, given all the violence that we've seen, and in terms of students like Lisa's daughter doing their best to to kind of grapple with their fears and keep themselves and their friends safe, but also schools realizing that rumors and and fears can spread like wildfire and maybe also cause a lot of harm like it it feels like this this story is really sort of a a, a moment in our times I'm glad it, it had that impact on you um, and yes I, I definitely think that this highlights so many of the broader issues in education right now um, certainly schools are under pressure to respond to anything that could be a, a threat you look back on every tragic school shooting and there is someone who said, this was a warning sign. I wish I'd known, I wish we responded to this. So researchers, state officials here in Texas, they repeatedly say that what has the power to stop a school shooting is someone speaking up. Um, Of course, there is a concern about rumors. We, you know, we see TikTok challenges that go viral sometimes of telling people don't come to school. There's, there's going to be a threat, you know, uh, all that stuff. And, you know, districts are responding to those types of things. But I think it's important, of course, to draw a line between that type of experience and what Lisa's daughter went through. Uh, and it really, I think, came down to intent. Um, Lisa's daughter did not want to start a rumor. She did not want to scare her friends. Uh, She says in the appeals hearing to the principal, questioning her on her actions, uh, that the reason she did this is because she wanted to make sure her friends were safe. Lisa, how is, how's your daughter doing? Um, She's struggling. Um, I want to clarify that although this was classified as a rumor, it wasn't a rumor. It was actually a factual statement. Um, Since this has occurred, she's had extreme depression, anxiety. Um, She has PTSD, high amount of school avoidance, um, and each day is a struggle. What I ask her to do is just face each day as a new day, do her best, go to school, face it. Each day it will get easier. Um, But the toll it has taken on her um, has been devastating. And the saddest part to me is, is that when we had a conversation and I said, if you heard something concerning, again, what would you do? 
And she says, Mom, I wouldn't say anything. So that's been a point that I've continuously brought up with the district is that their handling of the situation really put us in danger because in essence, they silenced a person who was astute enough to hear something that might be a problem. And, you know, maybe she didn't escalate it right, but she did escalate it. Um, And like you said, she did what we would expect from 13-year-olds. What did you tell her when she said, I'm I'm not going to say anything next time I'm scared? I can't say that I had a good response. I can tell you that it broke my heart. Um, I have told her that being brave and doing what's right is not always easy. And sometimes it does have bad consequences or blowback. But it's all character building and that she just has to keep pushing forward and doing what she knows in her heart is right. My dream would be that, like, you and one of these school school administrators would get together and, like, come on a show like ours or do a, a panel discussion together in the community just to sort of grapple with this moment from two different perspectives together. Like, I mean, are, are you are you in a space like that or? I, I, I feel like I started in a space like that. Um, I, I feel like I started with saying, hey, this could have been handled differently, but can we look at it and look through different lenses and see where we can better educate? So I think that I've shown that ability to partner with the district I'm sure my child is not a unicorn in this situation and that this could benefit others if we talked about it and we took a restorative approach. What have you learned, I guess, like as as a mom whose daughter went through this? Like you said that she escalated and maybe could have escalated differently. Like what what would your advice be to parents and and students around the country who, who might sadly have to imagine a scenario like this? Uh, Well, one of the things that I coached my daughter on is that always talk to adults first because we're better equipped to unpack the information and to help take actions to make things change. Um, I think the other thing is that um, the other side of it is that we need to be having conversations with our children about trigger language when I was in school, if someone said, don't come to school tomorrow, it meant there was going to be a fight in the cafeteria. Today, those words carry more weight and they're more heavily associated with violence. And so as we look to educate students on proper escalation routes, I think that we also need to be having a conversation with students about trigger language. Lisa Youngblood, I'm, I'm sorry your daughter's going through a hard time. Um, best to you, best to her. Um, thank you for sharing all of this with us. And, and Talia Richmond, thank you for, for bringing the story to light and, and for being here too. We really appreciate you both. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Sarah and Mo, I, I, I'd love to bring you in here. You're, you're both parents um, and come to this from that perspective and and sort of as, as observers of our culture and, and our world. Uh, Sarah, and, and particularly you as, as a lawyer, like I, you know, a, a school system can't really talk about this openly as much as Lisa Youngblood can because of privacy laws, but everyone's grappling with, with stuff here. I mean, what, what, what do you wish had happened differently here? What do you make of this? I think it's really hard. And, you know, you and I talked about this before the show is that I feel very squeamish talking about situations where we clearly only have one side because the school hands are tied. And so we're hearing about what the school thinks 
through one side, frankly. And I very much empathize with a mom whose daughter is hurting. It's not to say that she's lying or misrepresenting anything whatsoever, but she's an advocate for her daughter as well. Um, and so I- And I, what parent wouldn't be? And what parent wouldn't be, right? Like, of course. Yeah. Uh, and the school can't tell us what they think is different or what they saw differently. Um, but big picture- we have a problem in this country with school discipline. We have a problem with children being referred for prosecution and put into the criminal justice system for school disciplinary issues. We also have a problem with schools not knowing what to do with kids who are out of control and dealing with things and coming to school and being violent. And the schools are responsible if they don't refer these kids to the police and then the kid shows up with a gun the next time, right? So we're we're putting the schools in a really difficult situation. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals recently struck down two South Carolina um, criminal school-related discipline laws uh, as too vague that the kids couldn't possibly know whether their behavior was going to, you know, be criminally wrong or just school wrong. Um, and I, you know, there's this quote from the majority opinion, uh, based solely on the discretionary definitions of the statutory terms, particularly disorderly and boisterous. It is hard to escape the conclusion that any person passing a schoolyard during recess is likely witnessing a large scale crime scene. Uh, look, there's <laughs> a lot of truth to that. And in North Carolina, over a six-year period, 9,500 kids, as young as seven years old, were referred to prosecution under one of these statutes. Um, and as I'm sure you can all guess, it's not equally divided over race. Black students are seven times more likely in South Carolina to be referred into the criminal justice system. And at the same time, as this example shows that we were just talking about um, with with Miss Youngblood, um, the schools are also responsible for keeping all these kids safe. We can't hold schools responsible for both. They need to treat them like children, but also, my God, protect all the other children too. Yeah, you bring up race being a factor, and we should say that that is something that the Ty and Richmond, the reporter in, in Dallas, brought up. Um, that Lisa Youngblood's daughter is black, and that 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 you know that the the percentage of students in disciplinary schools in Texas um, who are students of color versus in the general population schools is higher, and that can be incredibly harmful and difficult if she had been put into that that disciplinary system for the rest of an entire eighth grade. I mean, we heard about how hard she's having it now, having not even been forced to go to a school like that at this moment. Mo, I, I want to bring you in here. I'm curious, both as a dad and as someone who watches the world closely and thinks about it a lot, how are you digesting this? Look, I've got a 13-year-old daughter. Same age. Same age. And I um, was in awe <laughs> as Lisa was talking uh, and when I read this story last week, I was in awe that, you know, this young girl went to her mom at all. Um, you know, she's 13. That's what they do. They have text chains with their friends and they process everything with their friends first. And you hope that you've raised your child well enough to know that if something's really bothering them that much, that they will will come to you. And that's what this young girl did was she went to her mother within minutes after talking to her friends. So it appears that the kid did everything right when we're out there preaching as a society that a result of as a result of all this violence, if you see something, you should say something. 
This young girl heard something. She said something. She processed it in the way that she knew how with her friends and then went to her mother. And the school district has said some stuff on this. Uh, you know, in uh, their decision to reverse their um, uh, their initial discipline of her, they said that the student did not intend to cause the disruption that resulted, that restorative practices and further supportive instruction for the student on ways to report concerns to school officials are appropriate. And they said that new facts can come to light during the course of an investigation, and that's why they reversed their decision. The fact that um, the discipline was handed out before there was an investigation. In a case like this, um, I think shows, you know, to some of Sarah's point, that there are flaws in our disciplinary system uh, in in our schools. We should not be penalizing students for processing out loud. And to have such a punitive result, to send this kid... To, to decide that for the rest of the school year, this kid that has never had a disciplinary problem, to send them to a disciplinary school um, just seems like the, the school district dropped the ball every step of the way until they restored it. That's how I see it. But should we restored it? They, they brought back the punishment. Um, again, as, as Sarah said, we don't know a lot from the school side um, except those, those few comments they made. Um, but should we be patient and and let schools process out loud too like in a way like it i mean i I could see a scenario where school officials doing the best they can thinking like we cannot allow students to say anything or spread fear and even if her intentions were good here we need to make clear that there are sort of consequences for not coming to adults and then they realized how they had just overreached, the punishment was too much, and, and and they're trying to get it right, too. Like, everyone's trying to get it right in, in such a difficult moment. I don't begrudge any school district from struggling with how to handle this era of rampant school violence. It's not easy for them. But at the time, if, if the school district needs to think out loud, they can do it in a case like this without sending a good kid uh, home without kicking them out of school and sending them to a disciplinary program where the kid suddenly feels like she is a criminal. That's not the answer. And I think there's other ways the school could have processed this. I think we're going to have to leave it there. This is um, Mo, thanks for bringing us this story to begin with. It's such an important conversation. Well, thanks to Talia for, for writing the story. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we've reached that time again for the famous rants and raves here on Left, Right, and Center. Uh, Sarah, I feel like I've forced you to go first recently. So, Mo, all yours. Any regular listener of this show knows that I am no fan of the Elon Musk era at Twitter. Every day he seems to give us new reasons to be concerned uh, about his stewardship over the company. And today is no different. Recent news reports talk about how morale uh, for the employees who are left at Twitter is 
at a record low. And there was one anecdote I read that really um, blew my mind. Managers who recently told uh, were recently told to provide a list of people who ought to be promoted, said one former staff member still in touch with some who remain working. Little did those managers realize that they were signing their own death warrant. Many of those managers were subsequently fired and replaced by those that they'd recommended as part of a cost-cutting drive. It appears that Elon Musk is doing everything he possibly can to destroy that company from the inside. And it is, uh, my heart goes out to those, uh, to those employees who are left trying to pick up the pieces. Sarah? All right, I'm taking a previous rave and I'm taking it back. This is a take back rave. Wow. So previously I had said that it was so great that even though the publisher of Roald Dahl's books was editing his previous material, that in fact, across the ideological spectrum, everyone seemed to agree that that was a really bad idea, that we don't edit old books just to sound like us and meet our modern sensibilities. And I thought that's sort of where we'd left it. But then this week, it turns out that R.L. Stein, author of Goosebumps, uh, which everyone should know if you're a child of the 90s, uh, turns out they're editing his books, except he's still alive, which makes it even more bizarre and says that none of these edits were run by him. Look, if it needs saying, I'll say it again. Do not edit old books and pretend that they fought the way that we did, had our you know, sense of justice or morality or anything else, not only because it's just weird and dumb to pretend like they did, but also it reminds us to have humility for our time and what we might be getting wrong as well. So don't do that. It's bad. Okay. I like that, that rants and raves can just be an ongoing conversation if you want to return to, to them and, and do some revisions. Um, I want to rave this week about Tom Manger, the chief of the U.S. Capitol Police. Uh, this week, he stood with his officers and honestly, he stood with the truth. Uh, he made clear that the portrait of the January 6th insurrection that viewers have been getting on Fox News from Tucker Carlson was distorted based on Tucker Carlson cherry-picking footage from the volumes that he got from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, not even worth quoting Tucker Carlson, whose reputation was already heading deeper into the toilet this week. Um, what's important is what what Manger said, that TV commentary will not record the truth for our history books. The justice system will. He added the truth and justice are on our side. All right, that is all the time we have. Uh, Sarah Isger, Moa Lathy, always appreciate both of you. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexandra Applegate. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. The show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. I want to thank the team here at KQED in San Francisco for hosting us this week. It's always great to be in the Bay Area. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I'm David Green. Thanks for being here and come back for more Left, Right, and Center next week. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 